Dregan is Scotland, Asher said. The land draws you in a way you cannot begin to understand. You feel the majesty and magic of the ancient land, from the tallest mountain to the lowest valley, in the leaves of the trees and in the currents of the streams. You feel an overwhelming and unshakable need to want to be a part of such a place, to want to belong. It doesn't confine you. Instead, it cradles you, offering its beauty and solitude for those who answer its call. Scotland is wild and free. It's fierce and unbreakable. It's home. That's right, my fine fellow Scottophiles. This week, we're diving back into lost genres and taking a look under the kilt. Grab your passports. We're bound for Scotland. Cue bagpipes! Hey there, romance nerds! I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Northern Onondaga Public Library in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. So if you're into theory, history, and raging about romance landia, you should stick around too. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. Let's rage! loud they are very loud <laughs> hey jackie yes how many scottish highlanders does it take to change a light bulb how many there can only be one i don't get it it's from the tv show highlander oh i haven't watched that in a very long time honestly these are the <laughs> oldest jokes i have ever seen in my entire life that's why i thought they were they made the perfect dad jokes so <laughs> it's okay some people get it yeah, I even tried to help Jen look up jokes just now, and they were all, like, Scottish jokes, and Scots have a very specific <laughs> sense of humor that is not work-appropriate. I'm not going to get fired for saying <laughs> so... a joke, intro joke especially. It's okay. It's still a good joke. I just didn't understand it. That's my own fault. Okay. Anyways. Well, Jen, we've come to that point. We're wrapping up our Lost Genre series here with one of my favorites. And yes, I know I say that about a lot of things. I have a lot of favorites. Um, And this time we're visiting the land of the Scots. These were truly my bread and butter romances growing up. And my collection of vintage paperbacks at home mostly revolves around Scottish and medieval, to the surprise of no one, I think. So I have to ask, Jen, were you as into Scottish as I was? Probably not on purpose. Okay. (laughs) I'm sure something snuck in there, but when I think back, it's not super standing out to me. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think it, it engraved itself on my soul the way it did you did. <laughs> you did. Uh, it really did. So I guess I got to, I have to probably say no. Okay. I don't want to go too far out there because I'm sure I have. Yeah. Like the, it was so massive for a really long time. It felt like now I'm like, I don't know. I know. I mean, like we'll get into it, but classic bodice rippers really like Joanna Lindsay, Connie mm-hmm. Mason, all those classic authors we've been talking about for this whole series really were big into Scottish too. They kind of wrote across the board, but I don't think you could have escaped the medieval genre without talking about Scottish mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Um, and now Regency, there's so much Scottish in Regency. Which I feel like I still stuck with Regency, honestly, because when mm-hmm. I do think back, like I, I was really obsessed with Jennifer Ashley's series for a long time, and yeah, it was a Scottish family that was marrying into like an English family, mm-hmm. and that was in relation to it. I can't think of anything outside of Maya Banks because mm-hmm. she did that whole line, the Never Seduce a Highlander. Yeah, yeah, and I think Kinley McGregor had a couple yes yep she did so otherwise for me i'm very much out of my depth so you gotta lead me out to the moors okay i i think that's a scottish thing is that a scottish thing 
Not really, but sure. <laughs> I'm trying. I got the spirit. <laughs> it's close, close to no cigar. Um, honestly, I could dive into an hours long discussion of early Scottish history, the rise of the clan system, and the start of the Pictish state, but we're not here for that today, sadly. Don't be too upset, Jen. We're oh, still going to get a big, good old history lecture. Don't worry. Oh, boy. It's just not as in depth. Okay, I lied. It is going to be in depth. You just have 16 not, pages like, on this. Don't lie to the listeners. I did go on a couple of like, rants. So we'll get into that too. Instead, though, we're going to focus our history on really what will better help us understand the classic Scottish romance novel. Because, of course, romance podcast, romance novel. I'll try to focus my discussion, I promise. What's even more exciting, I got to sit down with Dr. Ewan Haig at DePaul University in Chicago. And Dr. Haig specializes in cultural geography. Um, and I really wanted to get his take on Scottish romance novels and their popularity today. So that full interview will air in the mini-sode coming out Next week, I think it's Minnesota number 22, um, so you can listen to the whole episode then, um, but we're going to briefly summarize it and talk about it later on in this episode. So, to dive into the meat of everything, you might think it's odd to include a discussion of Scottish romances in a series about lost genres, because like Jen and I were just saying, Scottish isn't necessarily lost. Bekilted heroes and sweeping landscapes are still wildly popular in Romance Landia today. Scottish romances have swept the historical romance scene for years, spanning all the way from early medieval settings, think Vikings in the 8th and 9th century, all the way up through the Victorian and Regency settings popular today. Contemporary Scottish romance is also out there, but it seems to be a little more niche and is mostly published by British authors like um, Jenny Colgan, Susanna Kearsley does some time slip stuff, and yes... Diana Gabaldon, but Diana Gabaldon is historical. Paranormal is also huge in Scottish Romance Landia, and I really think we can thank Diana Gabaldon and Karen Marie Monning for that one. Now, I'm including Scottish in the lost genre category not because it's not popular anymore, but because there's something that feels like it's really missing, in my opinion, from these Scottish books. And that is Scottishness, which is not a word, but bear with me. We'll have a few caveats for this discussion today. These books are works of fiction, and so they do not necessarily have to be grounded in historical fact. That, that's a predicate for fiction. But like we've talked about with Regency, Scottish seems to have become a sandbox of a genre where people are welcome to play as long as they adhere to a few strict modifiers, i.e. stereotypes, when it comes to their characters. But something I've noticed and I have questionable thoughts about is just how stereotyped these Scottish novels are. And that's what I really want to dive into today. Should we modern readers necessarily be as supportive of Scottish romances when we have shunned other books for their cultural appropriation, like with Cowboys and Indians and Viking romances? I'll give you a spoiler alert when I say, I don't know. I don't have an answer, really. I just want to talk about it. Um, especially after speaking with Dr. Haig, I started to question more of what I thought I knew. So, Jen, we're going to talk it out. Maybe you can help me feel like figure out if I'm thinking too deeply about this. And goodness knows it won't be the first time I've been accused of that. I'll do my best. Thank you. Thank we'll you see. Very much. <laughs> All right. Because yeah, I can tell you right now, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't really see the problem with Scottish yeah. Viking, whatever. Go crazy. Okay. Yeah. I'll lay out my evidence for you in okay. a very long, detailed right. script ahead of us. We'll see. Okay, let's go ahead and dive into some of the history here for a little bit just to help set the scene and a little bit of history, a lot of bit of history. Mm -hmm. So this is where the second caveat of the episode jumps in. My personal specialization in Scottish history and my understanding comes from the period colloquially known as the Dark Ages. This is an early medieval time period that especially focuses on the time frame between the Roman exodus of Britain in the 4th century CE and the start of the Viking incursions in and around the 9th century CE. So... 
This whole discussion we're about to have is about a thousand years later than that. So it's a bit modern for me personally, but it is important to understanding the Scottish mindset. Um, so I'm going to do my best. I've done a lot of research. I've, you know, addressed a lot of this stuff in the time period between my specialty and the, what we're going to talk about today and the Scottishness of everything that we're going to chit chat. We're going to be talking here about Anglo-Scottish relations in the 15th to 19th centuries, and especially the aftermath of the Jacobite Rebellion and the Highland land clearances in the um, 18th and some of the 19th century. I think that, thanks to Outlander, anyone who has watched the show or read the books, or even if you've read a lot of Scottish romance, I think that these time frames will feel familiar. Um, even if you have like a tenuous grasp of the time frame, you might just have a good idea of the like point of reference I'm talking about. So... Jen, just shout out if you have any questions, okay? Okay, I, know I will. You will. Okay. Prior to the start of the Regency period, and just a reminder, the Regency was an English period of history roughly between 1790 and 1815, Scotland was having a rough time, to put it lightly. Scotland had long had a tense relationship with its southern neighbor, England, and there were multiple wars, battles, skirmishes, and revolutions fought over the contested land of the Scots. The most notorious boiling point, without a doubt, is the 1745 Jacobite Rebellion, which ended at the Battle of Culloden Moor. So there's your moor, Jen. <laughs> See? I wasn't totally wrong. No. If you're an Outlander fan or, like I said, vaguely familiar with Scottish history, this will ring a giant gong with you. If not, then here's the lowdown on hundreds of years of history. Scotland has pretty much always wanted to be its own independent nation. However, England has pretty much always been of the mindset that Scotland is naturally part of England's borders. Hence why we have the United Kingdom today, which consists of England, Scotland, and Ireland, but not Northern Ireland. Well, in 1603, James I, Elizabeth I's heir, ascended to the British throne. Because Elizabeth didn't have any children of her own, James was a distant relation who was given the monarchy. James himself was a Stuart monarch prior to taking the British crown, meaning that he had ruled Scotland. At first, everyone was thrilled. But when James assumed the British throne, he kind of left Scotland in the dust and focused not on making Scotland preeminent, but instead he tried to assert British authority and policy over that of Scotland's. You can understand that the Scots were not too happy about that. Plus, lots of British nobles actually contested James's ascension to the throne because of his distant relationship to Elizabeth. And as such, James's rule and his heirs' rules saw further dissension. Because of this dissension, the Stuarts were temporarily removed from the line of succession during the English Civil War between 1642 and 1651, and a parliamentary government was put in place only a few years. Not important. Moving on. After the English Civil War, when the Stuarts were put back on the throne, still not everything was hunky-dory, as religion was thrown back into the mix. Again, we're getting back into that religion discussion. If you haven't listened to Vikings or Pirates, go listen to them. I talked a lot about how under Elizabeth and her father, Henry VIII, religion was restructured to pull power away from the hands of the Catholic Church and put it into the hands of the British monarchy through Protestantism and the Church of England. Bear with me, this gets even sketchier from here on out. It's all a tangled web we weave. When the Stuart heir following the English Civil War, James II, was placed on the throne, there was an uproar because he was Catholic. And if you know anything about English history, like I said, they don't like Catholics. Because of James's association with Scotland due to his heritage through his father, James I, who was a Stuart king in Scotland, Scottish people were persecuted as, quote, popish. <laughs> 
I know. It's like, it's a weird it's word. Again, it's like a word. I'm like, are you sure that's a word? Okay. Is that an insult too? Yes. Oh, that's yeah. really, if I was like, Jack, you're such a popish person. Yeah. Like that would be really offensive. Yeah. It's hilarious. What is yeah. it? Just like, you like the Pope? You're Catholic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, 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 mm-hmm. gotcha. All right. I so thought I'm it was just popish, like, but... you were a fan of the Pope. Okay. Yeah. That would make sense. Cause <laughs> if you were a fan of the Pope and you were Protestant, it'd be weird probably back yeah. then. All right. Fair yeah. enough. I just think that's kind of charming of an insult. Probably yeah. not. So Maybe. you probably, if you've watched Outlander, or if you've read the books again, Never. you'll hear. Okay. Well, they use the they use the insult popish a lot, mm-hmm. especially when returning to the main um, hero, Jamie Frazier, who is Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and they use it to persecute him and like to talk about how he's like this bad guy because he's oh, Catholic. Oh, so it's not like a cute kind of insult. It's no. like a bad. Oh, yeah. all right, fine. Never mind. Sorry. Yeah. Just popish on the face of it sounds cute. Yes. I thought it was like, oh, you're so clumsy. You're so funny. <laughs> and no, what is it? It's like you're. So what is it? Um, it's somebody calling you Catholic, but in a derogatory sense. Okay. So you're like, oh, um, you're so Catholic. Yeah. So trigger okay. warning right here. It's like um, Islamophobia in the early 2000s mm-hmm. and calling somebody a Muslim was a slur. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Makes sense now. Okay. Um, they shouldn't have made it so cute sounding though. No. In my defense. I say we re, um, we take the word and we take it and we make it something cute instead. Okay. Okay. I don't know what that could be. It's penguin. <gasps> a popish penguin. Mm-hmm. Cause they have little suits on. Exactly. So and you get model. it. Uh-huh. Okay. 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 Um, so yeah, Scottish people were persecuted as popish because of James II being a Catholic, even though Scotland was aligned with the Presbyterian church. Um, but they still got viewed as a Catholic country because James II was again a Catholic. James, because of his religion, was taken off the throne and he fled to France. Remember that? His, um, and his supporters were called Jacobites in honor of his name because the Latin of James is Jacobus. Jacobus. Jacob, Jacobite. Okay. Meanwhile, his sister Mary, there's lots of Marys and James, took over the throne of England, but James II held on to his claim of the English throne from France. Fast forward to 1714, and due to a lot of bad genetics, bad rule, and bad politics, the English throne was passed on to George I, a Protestant, Hanoverian, aka German, relation. James's descendant in France, again also named James, was none too happy about this development and started funding rebellions against the English throne to try and reestablish the Scottish claim and thereby the Stuart claim to the United Kingdom. This would be the turning point to kick off the 30-year-long series of wars and battles collectively known as the Jacobite Rebellion. In 1743, the light at the end of the tunnel began to shine, and Bonnie Prince Charlie, James III's son, would lead the charge against the English monarchy. Charlie, from France, cultivated a close relationship with Scotland and his supporters there, relying on his family's long history of stewardship over the Stuart lands, stewardship, Stuart, <laughs> um, Stuart lands and monarchy in the early modern period. This served only to further divide England from Scotland and the Catholics from the Church of England. Then, in 1745 and 46, the Jacobites, and thus unfortunately the Scottish, lost their long fight for preeminence against England and the Hanoverian monarchy. At the Battle of Culloden in April 1746, the Scottish lost over 2,000 men, while the British lost only about 300. We aren't a military history podcast, so I won't really get into it, but if you are interested in knowing more about this time period and just why the Scots lost when they were so highly motivated and such great fighters, I've linked a few resources in the show notes for you. Unfortunately, the 45 Rebellion had longer-lasting effects and consequences than just the decimation of the Stuart claim to the throne. Highlanders, Klansmen, Scots, and Catholics were persecuted for their culture. 
Clans, in case you only have a tenuous grasp, are familial and territorial groupings that populated the entirety of Scotland. Clan territories denoted which clan you were a part of, much like school districts today, um, so not everyone within a clan was actually related. Clans themselves were ruled over, prior to 1746, by a clan chief. This was either an inherited role or it could be an elected role, depending on the clan. But the chief would assume the seat of power, both literally and figuratively, and was responsible for all major decisions such as arbitration, warfare, politics, marriage, etc. Wait, wait, what do you mean? So he, was he like a matchmaker? Yeah, he approved. Like, oh, okay. He could approve and then people would go to him so and be like, hey, I want to marry this person. So, like, if we're still going with the school district analogy, mm-hmm. like, the superintendent can be like, sure, you two lovebirds can go get married. Mm-hmm. So weird. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Why would he care? He was kind of viewed as like the family head. Okay. And so if even we, if you weren't related to the guy. Right. Yeah. Okay. And it was supposed to be kind of like many kingdoms and many kingdom alliances. So mm-hmm. even though they might have been peasants, which they weren't viewed as peasants because it wasn't a feudal kingdom, but you get get what I mean when I say peasants. Um, and they wanted to marry one another. It would still be two families like coming together. Mm-hmm. And so they viewed that as like little mini territories within the larger clan territory. And so like little family alliances helping mm-hmm. to build the clan stronger. It just feels like such a waste of time when he probably has other things to do. Yeah. Like that doesn't just stay in the families. I mean, sure, if it's his own family or one of the, I guess, the higher classes, but... Otherwise, like, who yeah. cares if yeah, not every Sally marriage and had Jimmy to go through him. To. Okay, yeah, not every marriage. Oh, oh, oh. But, well, see, that's what I thought. Yeah, but a lot of he performed a lot of the actual marriages, mm. um, especially like you said, of the higher up families and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And depending on the size of the clan, he could probably be bef- be performing like the smaller marriages and everything okay. too. And did people only marry within their own clans? Did they no. ever like go outside? They okay, so that was something that was especially important for the clan chief. Mm-hmm. Was he would arbitrate marriages alliances between clans Mm -hmm. because there were a lot i mean if you've read a scottish romance novel you might be aware of like clan feuds and territory disputes and all that um and so he would be the one who would reach out to the other clan Mm -hmm. chief and be like hey my daughter is gonna marry your son Mm -hmm. or like hey i want this person to go over and live in this territory and marry um they would also foster other clan like in game of thrones you've Mm -hmm. never seen game of thrones um they would well i know like the the vague ideas but i thought like the fostering was kind of code for like we're gonna keep your kids over here and make sure you behave kind of yeah it was like both probably yeah Mm -hmm. exactly so marriages fostering all that sort of stuff just to kind of try to keep a general clan peace throughout all of scotland okay i guess that makes more sense to me just when you first said marriage i was picturing some like real big busy body (laughs) getting into everybody's business and i mean i have no doubt that that definitely happened but yeah Um, So here's a bit of myth busting for you. In a lot of Scottish books, specific tartans are ascribed to certain clans. For instance, the Ross hunting tartan or the Campbell dress tartan. You'll hear that used a lot in romance novels of, oh, he was wearing the Ross uh, hunting tartan. I could tell from the pattern of green on black on red. Um, But this is a modern invention. For the most part, there is no actual concrete evidence prior to the Battle, Battle of Culloden. Culloden, Culloden, I'm never sure how I'm supposed to say it, that specific tartans were associated with specific clans. So, sounds like, yeah, okay, cool. whatever. <laughs> Back to history. Clansmen who supported the rebellion were arrested and deported en masse to the American colonies in a sort of penal colony situation, mm. except it backfired on the British because the Scots were like, yeah, America's land, okay. we have the power. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, 
and they actually really helped the American Revolution. Cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've read about that, about, yeah. like, the Scottish mm-hmm. um, soldiers. Because they came right out of the Jacobite mm-hmm. Rebellion, and they are children. And they probably would be especially happy to go kill British people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Glad something bit the British. Furthermore, the British put into effect after the Battle of Culloden a series of reformatory acts that were meant to suppress Scottish culture. And honestly, this is not unlike what would happen to the indigenous and First First Nations people in the 20th century in the Americas. So it sounds like just they suck. Yeah, they really did. I don't think Mm. a lot of people realize how bad this time frame actually was for the Scottish. But when I put it into the mind frame of this is a lot of the stuff that also happened to the indigenous and First Nations people because Mm. of the British, both during colonialization and during the 20th century i think that it, you might be able to better it puts recognize. it in perspective yeah put it okay. in perspective thank you yeah because i really don't know that much about scottish yeah. history but i know like a, the barest bearings yeah. of some first nations and it okay. still has a lot of effects to this day and age which mm-hmm. we will talk about later um so for instance the act of proscription banned scots from being in possession of wow. broadsword or target poignard winger or dirk side pistol gun or any other warlike weapon mm-hmm. so they couldn't carry any weapons at all if a scot was found with a weapon on him on them they were immediately taken into trial and pretty much executed that badly mm-hmm. oh my god mm-hmm. So the Heritable Jurisdictions Act of 1746 stripped away the legal authority held by clan chiefs over the member of their clans, meaning that these clan chiefs, like we talked about a couple minutes ago, no longer had the right to govern govern their own territories. Instead, governance was shifted south to Edinburgh and even further to London and Parliament. Uh, the Tartan and Dress Act of 1746 made wearing the, quote, Highland dress, a.k.a. the tartan and uniquely identifiable Scottish cultural clothing, illegal. This naturally included the kilt. Um, the only time a kilt or tartan was allowed to be worn was when in serving in the army, the Black Watch, and the Black Watch is still in effect today. There were a lot more than these, but I think you get the point. Anything that could be identifiable as uniquely Scottish or as a central tenet to the Scottish and especially Highland culture was outlawed by the British government in retaliation for the support of the Stuart and Jacobite claim to the British throne. The Brits saw the Jacobite rebellion as insurrection and they punished it as such. Punishment for defiance of any of these acts was execution or at the very least imprisonment and torture. To add insult to injury, the Highland clearances took place officially from 1760 to approximately 1850. Scots were ousted perforce out of their clan lands, homes, manors, and family territories and sent packing. No one was safe, all the way up from clan chief, as we just saw with the Heritable Act, all the way down to the lowliest um, farm worker. These removals cleared the land of people primarily to allow for the introduction of sheep pastoralism, which the English prized as a main livestock commodity. Those fluffy white sheep with the black faces that most people think of, they were livestock crops forced on the remaining tenants of the Scottish Highlands. For the most part, too, English nobility was put in place in the seats that had historically been Scottish and had been inhabited by Scottish clans and Scottish clan chiefs thus further eradicating Scottish hold on Scottish land. This absolutely demolished the traditional clan society even more than the Heritable Act had and led to a major death of Gaelic culture. In addition, Scots Gaelic, the collection of Highland languages that is native to Scotland, was outlawed and only English could be spoken. Where did the Scots go that they kicked out? A lot of them went to the Americas. Okay. Um, a good number of the diaspora went to places like France. Mm. Um, so they just left the country totally. Yeah, there wasn't even much. a spot in Scotland they could mm-hmm. stay. Mm-hmm. They did go some, some of them did go to the south, to the lowlands. Mm. Um, and I'll talk about that a little while later. 
Um, and then Dr. Haig and I talked about that, the diaspora, in our interview. So again, the similarities between the Scottish Prescription Acts and clearances and the indigenous clearances and atrocities committed in the Americas really is just puts, I think, everything into perspective. Mm-hmm. The Highland clearances resulted in the destruction of the traditional clan society and began a pattern of rural depopulation and emigration from Scotland that left the Highlands threadbare and Scottish culture decimated. The Scottish were suffering. At least for me, that really puts in perspective all the plots where the English Harris falls in love with the Scottish chief, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, this was a way bigger deal than I thought it was. Like, it's amazing these these guys did not kill them. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly. Plus, I did want to talk a little bit about that, and I didn't put it in the script because I didn't know if you had time. But you brought it up, so I'm going to talk about Perfect. it. Perfect. Glad I to help. I had a lot of issue. The more I thought about this and the more I contextualized everything I was reading with the fact that so many of these romances feature that Scottish man, it's usually a Scottish hero, mm-hmm, going to England or falling in love with an English heiress or somebody mm-hmm. who is not Scottish at a time when Scottish culture was really dying. And I just was like, this is, I don't know how I feel about this. Mm-hmm. Are you kind of getting what I'm saying? I wouldn't have thought much about it until I knew some of these facts. I guess probably the authors were thinking, oh, it's like a fun enemies to lovers. Love yeah. heals all wounds. It's like a nice simplistic kind of message. But oof, yes. <laughs> it puts it in a different lighting, definitely. And like in my brain, I had this moment of the thought, we keep coming back to like the beauty and the beast argument for romance yeah. of like beauty taming the beast and love uh, conquers all rights. Gross. And then you're thinking of, oh, <laughs> oh English conquers Scottish. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. That's why I started really cringing hard mm. as I was doing more research. Yeah. Yeah. With most of those plots, does it take place when these laws are enacted or is it like the grandchildren of the people affected by this? It depends. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the regencies today are during that um, post-1800 period, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and persecution had mostly died down. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was still kind of this tinge of like otherness and like exoticness Mm -hmm. to being a Scot, which I'm like, ooh, that's kind of cringy right there and then a lot of the medieval plots take place um at a time when normans were coming into england um and so you had a lot of the scots marrying into the french baronry and normandy and all that sort of stuff it kind of reminds me of what we talked about in the amish episode where a lot Mm. of people saw the amish as like a cultural tourism yes and i'm kind of seeing that with the scottish too at least in this particular example yeah exactly Mm -hmm. of like and this is like the safe one to I guess fetishize. Yeah. But when you use a big word. Yeah, I used the word fetishize in my interview with Dr. Haig just because I was having all these thoughts and he was like, mm, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Might be a little too dramatic, but yeah. it is like... And to put it, it in perspective, too, Dr. Haig is Scottish. Yeah. So maybe so. It's not as big of a deal. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, you know, I used to think that. And now after like doing all the research, because he researched Scottish romances for his own PhD dissertation, um, he's like, I don't have as much of a problem with it now as I did because it is driving um, Scottish tourism yeah. and it's driving the industry. Mm-hmm. So it is putting money into the hands of the Scottish. Yeah. So mm-hmm. money heals all wounds. And, and speaking of that, does time heal all wounds? <laughs> <laughs> to a minor degree. Uh, persecution of Scottish culture mostly ended by the repeal of the Prescription Act in 1782. But as I learned, and like I just said from speaking with Dr. Haig, there was still this degree of otherness to the Scots, this exoticness. 
there was a persistent view that Scots, especially Highlanders, um, were an alien people. They spoke with strong accents, were sometimes openly hostile to their English neighbors, and English and Scottish societies still had the, held grudges against one another for the Jacobite uprising nearly two generations earlier. But by the start of the Regency, again, 1790 is the rough start of the Regency, the outright persecution and prejudice had mostly faded into the background. And to put it into even more perspective for you, this time frame and this like mindset is very strongly reminiscent of the Allies versus German relations in the mid to late 20th century. And honestly, the timeline fits up perfectly. 1945, 1745, right? <laughs> it's just circular. If it really is. We never learn and we keep repeating. Mm. Sorry, dire fact. But now, as Scotland started to come out of this period of persecution and was moving more towards acceptance into a wider culture within the United Kingdom, Scotland was also going through a period of enlightenment. Between the 1760s and 1820s, the lowlands and universities of Scotland were flourishing, possibly because of the Highlanders who were being forced from their ancestral homelands, diaspora. Architecture, art, science, philosophy, and most importantly for us, literature, saw a massive boom and a reflection of new ideas that still continue to influence us to this day. At the same time, we have the start of the literary trend known as Romanticism. Again, if you remember from our discussion of pirates, we briefly touched on the literary movement known as Romantic Literature. Unlike modern-day romance, this wasn't HEA-guaranteed love stories. Instead, romanticism was used as a genre to express emotions and to evoke feelings in the reader. Romanticism roughly spanned from 1790 to 1850. The avid listener and payer of attention will recognize these dates from our discussion of Regency history. As a whole, uh, romanticism was characterized by a central theme, again, that focused around the emotions and inner life of the writer, and so it just wasn't, it wasn't just limited to fiction writings. Poetry and nonfiction, especially anything autobiographical, was immensely popular. We are really able to say that romanticism arose as a cultural movement out of the revolutionary period. Focus shifted from the grandiose character of earlier literature to the thoughts and feelings of the, quote, common man. Jane Austen is an excellent example of this, not that she's really writing about the common man, but as we talked about in our Regency episode, go listen to that one if you haven't yet, Jane was writing in a way that was A, more accessible to the general reader, and B, more representative in terms of class structure. Other famous authors from the Romantic movement included John Keats, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Edgar Allan Poe, Mary Shelley, of course, the dramatic Lord Byron, and most importantly to our discussion today, Walter Scott and Robbie Burns, a.k.a. Robert Burns. With the influx of Romanticism into the literary scene, Scottish authors had a natural foothold. They had been writing about the beauty of their country and the depths of feeling in the Scottish people for hundreds of years. I can't think of anyone who will disagree with me. Jenny better not disagree with me. Why would I ever I disagree know. with you? <laughs> you never disagree with me. Never! Not ever. <laughs> um, but Scotland is absolutely beautiful. It's rugged terrain, untouched wilderness, deep lochs, soaring mountains, an incredible history really lends it this just air of inescapable beauty romanticism really had a natural fit in the land of the scots and the scots had a lot to say they have a lot of feelings okay <laughs> robert burns um who lived from 1759 to 1796 is arguably scotland's most beloved poet not the least because he wrote in scots and scots english at a time when as we know the languages were outlawed he also touted the actual common man and was a proponent for women's rights you his writing truly helped start the Romantic movement, especially in Scotland. But, unfortunately, with the good must also come the questionable, and that is where we get to Sir Walter Scott. Now, Scott is widely renowned today. He's well-known 
and he was Scottish. So he had those good things going for him. He was a romantic author, but he focused on novels and especially on Scottish legend and archetypes. In fact, I would even say he focused on stereotypes. He's arguably most well known for his work, Rob Roy, um, a book that tells the story of a Scottish outlaw during the first Jacobite rebellion in and around 1715. This work became widely popular um, as a novelization and to this day has inspired movies such as the titular Rob Roy and Braveheart with Mel Gibson. Scott came to be most popular after King George IV, the contemporary, yeah, I guess contemporary is a word, uh, ruler of England, asked Scott for his help. I don't think I have to elaborate that by his rule in the 1820s, King George IV was not a very popular fellow in Scotland or anywhere else. He had assumed a throne that for nearly 100 years had actively been suppressing Scottish culture, and he faced a lot of endemic issues with his rule, both politically and financially. Don't get me wrong, he faced a lot of issues for other reasons too, but his lack of popularity and weak grasp of control was one of the central problems. George, um, you might remember from our discussion of Regency, as the period in general is named after when he was Prince Regent. George was generally viewed as something as a wa- of a wastrel, a rake, a cad, if you will, and he took that energy with him into his reign when he assumed the throne in 1815. When it came to Scotland, George knew he had to do something. He had to boost his public image in a time when social media wasn't there to help him with some carefully planned photo shoots. So George contacted his buddy Walter Scott and was like, hey dude, want to help me get with these wild Scotsmen? And Scott goes, yeah bro, I got you. Fun fact, Scotland hadn't been visited by a reigning monarch in more than 200 years by this point. Isn't it like next door to England? Yeah, (laughs) it really is. To get from York, which is where I lived, to Edinburgh was only like two and a half hours by Mm. train. So it would have been a quick day jaunt. From London, it would have been a little longer in the day. But Charles II was the last king to visit Scotland in 1650. And that is just bad policy on behalf of the English, I think. There is some difference of opinion in who contacted whom to arrange this press tour, whether it was Scott who wanted and dined George, or if it was George who reached out for help from a well-known Scottish author. I've read both accounts in researching this podcast, so if I got it wrong, blame the research. (laughs) Either way, Scott helps George and the Brits arrange the OG press tour, and on August 15, 1822, Scott's his birthday, King George IV and his retinue landed in Edinburgh to begin their royal tour. Part of this, shockingly, was dressing George in Scottish tartan and garb. <laughs> the same garb that had been outlawed not too many years ago. Oh, trust me, it gets better. He would have been so canceled today. Oh, it gets <laughs> so much better, Jen. Just wait. <laughs> Scott had commissioned more than 120,000 pounds worth of tartan to be manufactured for the charade, which is almost 17 million pounds in today's money. So it wasn't outlawed anymore when he... It wasn't. It had okay. been repealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll get to that in two seconds. Um, The version of the kilt that Scott created was a long way from the original form of Highland dress. Um, The original form was far less decorative, much more practical. Prior to 1746, the kilt was mostly a rough and substantial swath of material that would have been worn with a belt and doubled as a blanket for protection during the harsh Highland weather. It was known as the Great Kilt or Brecken and Fille. I probably said that very wrong. I'm so sorry. Instead, Scott invented, quote, something that we still use today and is known as a small kilt or a bag. This is the knee-length pleated version classically worn with a belt or sporran. Sporran is the belted pouch that hangs down in the front and looks kind of... So was the original, like, what, to their ankles? Um, It would have probably been to, like, mid-calf. It's kind of like a toga situation where you Um, just had a giant swath of material. Just, like, all over the place? Yeah. Um, It was also slightly waterproof, so you could wear it like a hood. That's nice. But it was only that way because of urine. Oh, that's less nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, as a note of levity, I want you to imagine King George wearing this small kilt. At this point in his life, he was not in the best of health. He was short. He was only about 5'2", and he was a rather large fellow. Um, it also didn't help that he chose to wear pink silk oh. stockings, and his kilt ended six inches above his knee. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. There's a lot of good caricatures, um, and he rode a horse like that. Uh, did he have a shirt, at least? He had a shirt, yes. Okay. Yes. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> Um, safe to say that the Scots kind of tore him apart for this. I will put a few links to caricatures um, that were drawn in the day, and we can all poke fun at George together. It's fine. He was a colonialist, and he drove England towards debt. Oh, yeah. So, I don't feel bad yeah, at all. No. Good. No, please. We're going to make fun of him. Um, but you know what? Subjects seeing their king of all people wearing a kilt in Scotland really helped bring kilts back into fashion and tartan into fashion the tartan and dress act like i said had been officially repealed in 1782 under george iii but many were still hesitant to wear it because of the perception of the scottish by english and other outlanders in addition to dress during this event bagpipes were played a scottish weaponry was on display and scots regiments were paraded in the streets there was also a ball which featured um multiple people wearing kilts while dancing so, in reality, George IV's visit and Walter Scott's romanticization of Scottish culture at the end of the Regency period helped to at least bolster the view of Scottish culture in the minds of the English and other outlanders after years of prejudice. The popularity of romantic literature seen through authors such as Scott's, Keats, and of course Burns also helped to improve how Scotland was viewed in the wider cultural arena, and the Scottish Enlightenment um, created an air of superiority to Scottish establishments and schools of thought. Indeed, the Scottish Enlightenment and the Jacobite Rebellion had a clear and direct influence on other revolutions such as the american and the french scotland thanks in part to george the fourth's visit and to his air victoria's fascination with scottish culture became a tourist destination with many towns being specifically built to cater to these outlander visitors and today of course scott is that where outlander comes from yeah <laughs> it refers to somebody not from the highlands oh, so they're out yeah but I thought it was something that what's her face made up yeah no I don't know I thought it was because it was like time travel I don't well it (laughs) is okay so also fun fact um (laughs) the original title for Outlander was Cross Stitch that's weird yeah yeah and I think it was sold in the UK under that title Mm. until like the early 2000s I don't like that one Um, but thanks to Outlander, <laughs> there's a lot of tourism now. And especially within recent years, tourism has boosted a lot. Um, Scottish culture is emulated in the media, especially by us Americans. And tourism is one of the driving industries in Scotland. Spending by tourists today accounts for around 5% of the GDP and for more than 7% of employment in Scotland. But... Was this evolution of Scottish representation and the rise of popularity and consumption of Scottish tat and tourism a good thing? Or was it a bastardization bordering on cultural appropriation? And this is what I want to talk about in relation to romance novels. I also want to say again, we will be airing the entire interview with Dr. Ewan Haig um, next week in Miniso number 22. So you can guys can hear everything we talked about, which was a lot. It was really fun to talk to a smart person i mean i talk to smart people every day that came out very wrong i'm so sorry jed i meant somebody in the scottish field wow. right. no it's fine i'm a big dummy over here no you're not you're smart mm. you're smarter than me you make I mean, me i won't argue smarter. with that <laughs> okay <laughs> i won't argue with it either <laughs> 
<laughs> Anyways, to sum up our discussion, I asked Dr. Haig how he, a Scotsman himself and a professional in the field, felt about the use of Scottish culture in media such as romance books. Prior to our discussion, in my mind, as I said earlier, I was having a lot of issues reconciling my love for Scotland and Scottish history with the way that Scots and their culture had been represented in romance novels. For the most part, authors are respectful. Yes, they aren't discriminating against the Scots or perpetuating harmful stereotypes. They do their research and are generally obsessed with making sure every little detail is at least somewhat historically accurate. And they try to generally make Scotland as attractive as possible. Most of the time, that's through beautiful vistas and rippling pectorals. I mean, it works for me. <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> but at the same time, there's a lot of stereotypical representation of Scotland and Scottish culture that isn't historically accurate. For instance, the kilts and tartans, like I already spoke of. A lot of authors will describe the modern short kilt being worn by characters in the 15th century. And they'll also have the use of clan tartan colors during this time period when there was no true historical or archaeological evidence for clan tartan colors prior to really about like 1700, really even 1746. Plus, the way that Scottish language and accent is portrayed is very problematic. This, I went down a rabbit hole with this. I'm going to warn you right now, but it's something that not a lot of people know. So we're going to go with it. All right. So All right, I'm following you down the hole. <laughs> yeah. Gaelic, Scottish, and Scots was and still is a collection of regional dialects and languages that developed in Scotland from around 500 CE and evolved from Celtic and Germanic roots. However, romance authors are wont to write the Scottish accent in a way that is quite notorious. Think of all the ochs and the eyes and the nailasses you see in those classic bodice rippers, right? And this, in my mind, is dangerous because it threatens to homogenize a variety of dialects and languages that have different lingual roots into one single portrayal. And even more so, it threatens to eradicate their exposure as actual dialects and self-standing languages and to minimize it into simply an accent of English. Jen hates when I talk about TikTok. But there are a good number of educational creators on TikTok who specialize in talking about Scottish culture and Scottish language. Miss Punny Penny is one creator who talks about this. I will link her in the show notes for you. And through her, I realized that um, this written out depiction of the Scottish accent, it's an English portrayal of the Scottish languages. As I said before, a homogenation of the languages into one single depiction. The Highlanders from up in the Hebrides spoke differently from the Highlanders around Inverness who spoke differently from the Lowlanders near Edinburgh and the English border and so on and so forth. And yet, romance authors have traditionally lumped all these linguistic depictions into one sum. So I will say, I don't think romance authors are doing this on purpose or to be harmful. Thanks to centuries of prejudice and the act that banned the speaking of the Scots language and dialects, there is an entrenched flaw in the Scottish and global education system that doesn't teach or educate people on the history of the Scottish languages. The Education Scotland Act of 1872 actively punished students who spoke Gaelic, and today the collection of Scottish native languages collectively known as Gaelic is endangered hmm. linguistically. There have been efforts to revive it and to begin teaching it in schools again, but as of 2018, UNESCO has classified Scottish Gaelic as definitely endangered. That's interesting. Yeah. I would have assumed they were still speaking Gaelic. No. Hmm. it um, The places that it is spoken the most is up in the north in the Isle of Skye and the hmm. Hebrides and all that. So like those distant border regions. Uh, that were like away from, the, from yeah. England. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's struggling. Um, so combined with a lack of general education about the historical differences and classification of Scottish languages, the general lack of actual language education in Scottish schools, and the endangered status of the language, how can romance authors accurately depict the Scottish language in their books with compassion? 
I don't have an answer, <laughs> but I think it's a good example of the larger issues at hand. Um, we can talk about romance authors playing in these sandboxes. We can talk about them doing incredible research and depicting Scottish culture in a generally respectful way. But at the same time, these authors are also playing into stereotypical depictions and homogenizing a categorically endangered language, which technically is cultural appropriation. So Jen, I know you're like, those wheels are turning in that big brain of yours. After hearing everything I had to say, and after you listened to the interview with Dr. Haig and heard what he had to say, do you think these Scottish novels are bad or are partly cultural appropriation? I don't want to say they're bad. I mm-hmm. think that's going way too far, especially when he had talked about appreciating how much the authors appreciate his country and mm-hmm. the, all the tourism and the dollars. I mean, I Yes, I could see both points. Sure, maybe on paper it's cultural appreciation. But thinking about how people probably understand English who are not native English speakers, I think it's just a natural thing to do. Because I'm sure there's probably plenty of Scottish writers who would probably put like a Western dialect in a New York resident. You know, yeah. they just don't see the difference. They all they lump true. it all together. That's true. I'm If I was going to put myself in the shoes of a Scottish romance author... Probably the stuff you want to talk about is the the pectoral Highlander sweeping the English lass off her feet. I don't know if there is that much research or even that much information out there about the specific types of dialects. I do wonder if some of it is an access problem. Because potentially if... Like I was just saying. Yeah, like if they had been trying to kill this language for a gazillion years, it's probably difficult to have gotten, you know, the, the nitty gritty. Yeah of what it is and then if you're just doing a lot of research based off what's available if maybe you're influenced by the the Scottish romance you've already read yeah I could see you just kind of like glomping onto that playing in that sandbox yeah yeah and also too the readers are most familiar with that right yeah and you don't want to have to introduce your readers to something totally new when you want them to focus on like the plot or your writing right you want to have to have a, a whole aside about by the way this is why this dialect is the way it is yeah yeah And then you'll have to have a whole glossary Mm -hmm. of all the language. And I mean, I'm making it sound like hard work is bad work. Not not that, but I'm just thinking if if your period of when the Scottish romance was really big was the 90s. I don't know how easily this information would have been available to most authors. Yeah, I mean, probably today you've got less of an excuse because we've got more Scottish literature. And I know the one article you sent me showed like like a movie like Brave being a very good representation of the different dialects. But even then, there's only so much you could probably look up of like the very nitty gritty details. Yeah. So I I don't know. I mean, probably fair enough. But I feel like if the Scottish people are getting money off of Americans laziness. You know, I feel like we keep coming back to this discussion of authors doing what authors do and researching Mm -hmm. how authors research and writing this and us kind of almost maybe if not wishing they would go into more detail if hoping they would go into more detail Mm -hmm. and it's almost sounding to me like we're starting or at least I'm starting to be like authors need to be academics who spend lifetimes researching and I that's not fair so that's entirely true yeah because that's not really why I'm reading a Scottish romance (laughs) like the one I picked up today (laughs) yeah I don't really I should know more about the Scottish dialect I should know a lot of things that I don't know but yeah I don't know. This isn't the things that keep me up at night, to be totally honest. Like there's, especially considering how there are so many other dark sides to romance. And like this one seems pretty 
I don't know, not too terrible on the face of it. No. I've read, I read in the one article too that I guess questions are usually related to the language and the accent that Scottish people will get when they're like, oh, hey, I'm from Scotland. And mm-hmm. people are like, oh, do you use Lassie? Yeah. <laughs> Say like, something oh that's Scottish. You, and then you they'll know, then swear at you a yeah. very good bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean... You know, if that's the worst they get, yeah. it's not too bad. I mean, it's not like England executing them because they happen to wear their kilt, you Seriously. know? yeah, yeah. I think these are probably pretty good problems to have. Yes. Compared to this what it used to be. And hopefully it's like me where you read a lot of these Scottish romances mm-hmm. and you get so inspired and just so enamored with yeah. Scotland and Scottish history that you decide to make it your life's pursuit of academia mm-hmm. and then you go into libraries instead. And I mean, what's the... And you talk about it on a podcast. What's the flip side? Then you don't write anything at all about yeah, Scotland? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this isn't like terrible representation. No. I mean, I don't particularly see any of this as being like racist. No, I don't you think... Know? I think the closest we get to that is like we talked about earlier with the Scottish marrying into the English mm. and like... So a lot... Okay, I'll talk about this now. A lot of the Regency plots that I see are Scots, especially Scots heroes, coming down to London mm-hmm. for whatever reason, and they always have to marry an English woman. Mm-hmm. And then they end up leaving Scotland forever and living in England with their new wife yeah. and family. And I'm like, that seems wrong. Yeah. Well, I know Europe considers racism differently than we do yeah. in America. And thinking, too, about a lot of Highland heroes seem to get kind of like that noble savage trope we talked a little yes. bit about in Vikings. yes. They're all, like we said, rippling pectorals yeah, and, and hair blowing in the mm-hmm. wind and big brawny men. And I men. think it, it's a big deal, too, that they're seen as, like, these free-spirited creatures that are all about individuality and, they're like, a more grumpy. primal, primitive kind of thing. Yeah. Like, you know, that's, like, the kind of gross characteristics we've given to, like, the noble savage archetype yeah. for a gazillion years. Which is racist. So that kind of thing would be gross. Yeah. Like, that that sort of treatment is what I would be looking for in a book for me to be, like, Bleh. And you I guys. think we have moved away from that with Scottish romance. Well, we have to. Yeah. I know during your discussion, he kind of mentioned that, you know, one of the lost genres he would actually consider a well, lost she, genre. Is just, she, yeah. And I think that's a good point. And I know when I brought up this kind of theme to you of talking about lost genres, it was based in us having our own discussions of like, well, what happened to pirates? Yeah. We talked about pirates so much. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me. Why things like yes. Native American romance or chic romance have gotten out of style yeah. very, very quickly. Yes. I don't think that needs a lot of investigation. That uh, one. It's pretty obvious. 2001, yeah. 9-11. Well, that yeah. one too. But even before that period, oh, yeah. I, I, it's pretty clear that we can't necessarily do those romances in the same way we had been doing. Yes. So they're just kind of like, we're not going to touch it, I think, is what happened yeah. to a lot of romance authors. We're just going to like throw it away from us. Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Exactly. That and like, yeah, I never see Native American romances anymore, which yeah. for good reason, because again, the noble savage, all the racism, the colonialism, the it's pretty problematic yeah to put it very very lightly yeah yeah and i don't know maybe we'll revisit lost genre in the future if we feel like taking on the those shake debate and i did pick up a really good book about orientalism as the, the cover put it in romance yeah so who knows maybe one day uh not for the the moment because i want to think about it some more yeah. i mean that's going to take a lot of brain power yeah. that we don't have at the mm-hmm. moment um yeah no that was all a good point and something else that dr Hagen and i spoke about in regards to this was maybe it's more a degree of cultural appropriation than necessarily a 
appreciation rather than appropriation. Yeah, that's fair. But at the same time, there's this obvious commodification of the culture that mm-hmm. is purposeful. And well, that like the, one, the bind kilts and the... Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's called tat, Scottish tat. I don't know what that is. Um, that's like all of like the stuffed Highland cows and Loch Ness mm-hmm. monster toys and yeah. tartan um, dishcloths and soaps and mm-hmm. hats and like the red wigs and all that sort of stuff. That's Scottish tat. Mm-hmm. And all of that is like directly plays into Scottish tourism. And Dr. Haig, he didn't call this harmful, but I think it, while it is putting money into the hands of the Scottish and into Scottish industry and all this sort of stuff, I do just have to question like this commodification if it's necessarily the right commodification i I don't know i guess i would wonder if it's harmful yeah like is it actually causing harm to anybody is it just like a stupid thing for americans to think about i'm sure it's annoying yeah but i mean in the same way when people picture what an american might look like this is true you know i just think it's natural for everybody to do that until you actually go over to another country and you're like oh oops i think that the biggest harm when I think of Scottish tat and the commodification of it is um, when you go to Edinburgh on the on the Royal Mile, the high street that's right there, mm-hmm. um, the entire row of shops is mostly Scottish tat. And mm-hmm. this is, it's a mile worth of shopping that is mostly this – it caters to tourism, right? Because yeah. that's where all the tourists want to go. That's where you want to see things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's all just this tourist stuff instead of being local crafters, Scottish mm-hmm. creators, Scottish industries. It's – still money going back into scotland but it's like this fake stuff made in china i hate mm. to say it but it's not like scottish created you know yeah. okay. and here in the states we have such a strong especially up here in upstate new york we have such a strong um like cottage industry local industry like mm. hyperfixation um that i would like to see more of that in mm. situations of commodification okay i'm not an economist though so don't <laughs> quote me <laughs> I just understand mm-hmm. it from... Yeah, and I mean, if it's something, too, like the tourists are, like, degrading the environment or yeah. the places. Because we read about they that are. in other places where yeah. they'll take a piece of the castle and now it's falling apart. So, um, there are stories. If you go to Culloden Moor, do not take rocks. Mm-hmm. Do not take no. anything. This is a grave site. This mm-hmm. is a national oh, it's especially monument. Gross. <laughs> exactly. Jeez, there are stories of people, yeah. like, taking rocks and then sending them back to the wardens there mm-hmm. and being like, I'm so sorry I took this. I've, I've like, been haunted of thinking of this. But mm-hmm. imagine how many people do it anyways yeah or like when you go to the isle of sky or the fairy pools all these beautiful natural places and mm-hmm. just the influx of tourism it's kind of ruining well, it's it good it does also come with this kind of like negative side yeah. what else does Scot- scotland export is that really how they make their money is just people coming in um they export whiskey okay uh they do a lot more i don't i don't know off no the it's top okay of i just head. was wondering if it was like a giant chunk of their of their pie they actually a lot of industrialism too mm-hmm. especially in the northern cities like glasgow um, um they do a lot of sea trade um salmon like local hatcheries okay. that sort of stuff scottish mm-hmm. salmon is delicious also so mm-hmm. um so one last thing about tourism. Mm-hmm. I just recently listened to another really good episode um, that talked about the documentary The Last Tourist mm-hmm. and how tourism can start to be harmful like you and I just talked yeah. about. So I recommend – I will put that in the show notes too. It's from um, National Parks After Dark and the documentary is The Last Tourist. I will put that on there and I encourage you to watch it or listen to it and kind of contextualize that when you think of Scotland and how these – Romance novels have driven us to want to visit Scotland, and especially Outlander has um, driven us to want to visit Scotland so much. And think about the impact we could have from doing that, both positive and negative. Mm. 
So just to wrap this up, yeah. you said at the start of this that Scottish isn't really considered a lost genre, but you put it in here because you felt like it was missing something. Yeah. So like, what is it missing? To so- me, it feels like it's missing authenticity. It feels like Scottish tat. It feels like too much of a stereotype and mm-hmm. too much of that sandbox. Like we talk about in Regency, it just feels like too much of that and not enough. So like the classic yeah. ones, were they authentic? No. Oh, so it's never been authentic. <laughs> right. So there's never been, like, what, a job? I think we've lost it from the beginning of romance, to okay. be honest. I think that romanticism under Robbie Burns and even, yes, Walter Scott, I think that they were really good at depicting what it was like to be Scottish, what it was like um, in this time period and all this. And I think we've just kind of lost something since then. I sound like such an elitist right now. Oh, my God. I'm yeah, so well, sorry. <laughs> I love Scottish romance novels. I really mm-hmm. do. Like I said, that's yeah. the majority of my collection back home. Mm-hmm. But I just, I don't know, as a Scottish academic, as somebody who studied, like, the shift in the culture and the history of that of that country Mm -hmm. i just i don't know there's something there that's missing for me i mean i don't totally know if i understand that i know i was really surprised when you wanted to pick scottish for this particular thought i thought like you'd pick something like knights or oh i wanted to talk about medieval but it's such a big thing i didn't know how Mm -hmm. to address it well maybe we'll come back to this because it'll be like a long going series when we think about some more of the genres that we haven't seen anymore just because regency took everything over yeah it really did Mm mm-hmm and that's too where we lost some Scottish is it's now in Regency. Yeah, it's true. There's a lot of overlap. There's still some medieval out there. Like mm-hmm. Lindsay Stans still publishes medieval, like yeah. 14th century. Um, Once in a while, but it's pretty rare. It's I feel mostly like in when I see her, Regency. I see like vampires when yes. I see Lindsay Stans. Paranormal. Yeah. Ooh, can we talk about paranormal? Really yeah, please. Quick? I love paranormal. Okay. I don't really have anything planned for this. You read more paranormal than I do, but well, I'll paranormal do my best. is huge in Scottish. Right. Um, there's a lot of werewolves. There's a lot mm-hmm. of time travel, which I think is like a corner of the market obviously mm-hmm. outlander but karen marie monning um when i think about scotland at least in terms of paranormal and maybe again this goes into it not being authentic so i'm very sorry for not having like all this <laughs> scottish okay. background okay. but i feel like there's something very mystical about it yes there's something very like magical <gasps> there's very yes. like something about it feels like this is where magic could be born yes. so to me it feels like a great setting to put a paranormal plot of like a werewolf or like a like a time travel thing mm-hmm. Loch yeah there's just something about either that or ireland yes i could see being like oh it's because of the fae yeah you know or it's because of the moors and the mist and I, the bogs i don't know it feels like it, it's like a like a magical place it really is yeah like it just fe- like it just feels like it's like other word it, it already feels otherworldly. like otherworldly to me thank you yeah. i couldn't pronounce it it's okay I, it already feels like that to me so it it feels like a great setting for a mm-hmm. plot like that. One of the things too, I really love about time travel specifically why there's so many time traveling Highlanders. Mm. It feels like because again, we put Scottish Highlanders into kind of like this noble savage thing or this alpha thing. I think uh, authors, when they write that kind of a setting, they like pairing that kind of old world alpha thing with a modern, a modern female. It's kind yeah. of the way to have the best of both worlds in a plot. Yeah, it's like the best butting yeah. heads. Yeah, I talked about that in Paranormal. I forget what author quoted that. I'm so sorry to that author. But I, well, as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense for why it's always like... Was it like, Cresley Cole? It might, I don't think so. Oh, okay. I think it might have been... Um, well, maybe it was. I don't remember. I'll have to go back and look. Okay. But 
I thought it made so much sense for why it's always like a historical man with uh, a modern independent woman. And there's uh, along with the whole plot, there's always that struggle of like, well, you know, he wants to make her his woman. And she's like, no, I want my independence. It's like the caveman versus the modern woman. Yeah. It's like a sneaky way of of making that happen because the I guess the the implied thing is like a Highlander would not be born today. So you got to go back to the past. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, or at least the stereotypical yeah. view of a Highlander. Exactly, yeah. going back to it not being very authentic. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, just kind of that whole area. Also the myths and legends of Scotland mm-hmm. themselves, talking about magic. Yeah. There's just so many of them, mm-hmm. and there's so many regional ones, too. Yeah, it's very easy to use, yes, I imagine. It is. It's just easy to believe. Like, yeah, with the landscapes. and Maybe it's it was art. the whiskey. <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, actually, between that, the whiskey, the magic, the landscapes, like... It, it just feels very primed yeah. for these kinds of paranormal plots. And I think those, if I ever read any Scottish things, it probably was paranormal more than, mm-hmm. you know, the contemporary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just mm-hmm. fits perfectly. Yeah. So, well, I think that wraps up our discussion of Scottish. Thank you for bearing with me on that. Mm-hmm. Don't forget to tune in next week for the entire interview with Dr. Ewan Haig. Dr. Haig, thank you again so much for sitting down with me. Um, And we talk about cultural geography and Scottish perceptions in romance novels. Jen, you are doing the next episode. It's going to be really cool. What are we doing? I don't know yet. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Okay. I I have a lot of ideas. I just have to sit down and really like, all right, this is going to be the next one. Part of my problem, too, is I've been doing a lot of research for Monster Boyfriend. So I kind of have to put that on the back burner because that's not going to be until October. No, but it it is coming, so okay. we'll see. I got a couple <laughs> ideas. Do you want to know a happy fact about me? Oh, yes. I found out I actually do like sci-fi. <gasps> oh, yay. I read like 10 sci-fi oh, in like a ones. week. Yeah, the thing is. Spider aliens. I think what happened is I actually <laughs> don't like spaceships. No. I think as long as the sci-fi is not in a spaceship, then like I'm super good. Okay. So I think we are going to be getting a lot of aliens in my monster boyfriend's <gasps> uh, wrap up. I'm so excited to talk about Tiffany just, Roberts. It's just like. The ships are so cold and they're not cozy and I like don't care about the buttons and the lights and like <laughs> I just don't like that as a setting and it made me think actually how powerful setting is in romance because mm-hmm. just the fact of it being on this gross ship made yeah. me be like I don't want to spend time with these people but if you're going to be stuck here. in a jungly world yeah, if it's with stuck giant in a jungle, spiders and nests. If, like it's set in like a futuristic city. If it's set in some other really cool location then I'm like yeah give it. Yes. Give me. I'll read about my monster yes. spider boyfriend or my Jen orc. Is on the or sci-fi train. It just it has. It's oh, very I specific. I figured it out. I was <gasps> very excited. So there we go. I mean, it would go into monster boyfriend. Yes, this is true. I mean, I don't think we could just do an orc. And it we kind have of Lord all goes of the Rings together. coming out. Come on, let's do oh, orcs. God, no. All right. Mm-mm. Well. I think that wraps up everything. Beautiful. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank Mm -hmm. you as always to Noble for hosting this podcast. Go to noble.org. Check out all the programs and everything we have going on there. You can always email us at ragingromantics at noble.org. Make sure as always to check out the show notes. I'm just wrapping everything up here. You guys know what I'm always going to say. Jen, what do we always say? Rage on! Bye, guys. Checking. Check, check, check. Check. Okay. <laughs>